I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to this podcast, which is an abridged version of the television interview that I did with Joe Brand as part of my In Conversation series that was transmitted on the W channel. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by UKTV Play the free on-demand service. Tonight, I'm in conversation with a woman who started her career in mental health. Before moving on to becoming an award-winning comedian and writer, she's recently raised over a million pounds for sport relief. Tonight, I'm in conversation with Joe Brand. Joe, thanks for being on the show. Pleasure. Now, I mentioned before that you started your professional career in nursing, and I want to come on to that later, but then you moved into stand-up, where your persona, it's fair to say to most people, (laughs) is man-hater too strong? No, not strong enough. (laughs) Man-killer. But why, why did you take that stance... Because it's that you you were coming into the sort of wave of new alternative comedy, so I presume there wasn't many women around. No, when I started, I kind of roughly totted up who was on the circuit, and it worked out at, I think, about 250 men and 20 women, maybe. So we were a sort of very small group, and I, I think the thing is, like with women in comedy at that time, you just had to be very extreme yeah. because you you felt like you were really competing with a kind of... Well, you were, with a very kind of male-dominated uh, group of people. But when you came into it, you were you were 30 when you did your first open spot. I was, So you'd already yeah. had a life. What was your reception like amongst the other comedians? Well, I was, I was really impressed that they were so friendly, really. Yeah. I, I never, ever had any... Um, I don't, I'm not really a man-hater. <laughs> I didn't hate all those men that were comedians. No, I kind of got I, on really well with them. I've got, you know, uh, two brothers and um, I had kind of a, quite a sort of tomboy upbringing because I had brothers, so yeah. I'm very good at fighting. <laughs> and I like football and, you know, I dress appallingly and I wouldn't know a pair of high-heeled shoes if they hit me in the face. So that's kind of the sort of upbringing that I had. So yeah, I kind what, of get on I, with blokes, really. See, what I was looking at is the fact that when you came into doing stand-up, you, you were obviously a, a fully formed person, as it were, you know, and that's what I found because I started probably a, a bit older than you. I think it was 34, 35 before I did an open spot so you like you kind of know who you are as a person and you're in a dressing room with a lot of kids who are in their 20s and in many respects I was surprised first of all like you that everyone was friendly and everyone was supportive but you're almost sometimes had to find your gap in it and I was, that's why I was wondering whether this more aggressive stance that you took was finding your place as it were where there was nobody else doing it well, it, it, to some extent it was that, but also it was like making an impact, I think. Yeah. 
And I, I do really like winding people up as well. So that was a lot of what it was to do with. I just wanted people to think, I can't believe she just said that. When you first began, A, being a woman and B, being a woman of size, how hard was it to build up the confidence to go on stage and how, how receptive were the audiences? Well, it wasn't particularly hard when I'd had like four or five pints of lager. <laughs> that helped a lot, really. And also, I think actually having um, been a psychiatric nurse, my job was I was in charge of a 24-hour walk-in psychiatric emergency clinic in south-east London, which was how you might imagine it to be. And because I was in charge, um, any occasion on which someone who was quite difficult to manage had to be told either that they weren't going to be admitted or they weren't going to get any drugs or um, they had to leave, it was me that got wheeled out to tell them that. So I was the one that got most abuse, really. So from that point of view, I was kind of quite used to the abuse, really. And so when I went on stage and someone went, oh, you're a fat lesbian, my attitude was, can't you do better than that? Yeah. <laughs> what made you go into mental health? Well, I think it was a combination of things. I don't think a lot of people go and work in mental health unless they know something about it yeah. already. My mum uh, was a psychiatric social worker and my dad um, had a depressive um, illness from his mid-teens. So I was looking at it from every angle really and so it wasn't something that I was frightened of which is actually the case with a lot of people yeah. they're scared of people who have mental health problems because they don't know what to expect but did you know that like you, you mentioned your dad having depression but did you know your dad had depression your dad just no your I dad. just thought he was horrible because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> actually the thing about depression is anger is a really huge component of depression yeah and particularly in men and um, because, because one thing, one of those clichés they say about depression is that it's anger turned in on yourself. Um, and my dad was just a very angry, frustrated person. And obviously, you know, if, you, if someone like that's in your family, then you are the nearest to them. So you are the one that, that suffers the most from them losing it, which he did pretty often. Because I read a couple of things about your dad, uh, where you were uh, 16, I believe, your family had moved to Hastings and you were going out with somebody who was quite poshly spoken. Yeah, he was, yeah. Uh, but was a, a, a ne'er-do-well, wasn't a nice guy. What was the story behind all of that? Well, he, he brought me home late and my dad did that thing that dads do, which is what's the meaning of bringing my daughter home at this time of night... And this guy, who was from a posh family, said to my dad, now, hang on a minute, my dear chap. Right, and my dad is, like, very left-wing, working-class socialist. And he just said to this, this boy, um, <laughs> he said, um, if you call me anything like that again, I'm going to hit you. So he did warn him. And then uh, Andy, his name was, went, but my dear chap, at which point my dad's fist just sort of connected with him and he flattened him. That's just great, isn't it? <laughs> Does every, every man watching this now with a teenage daughter who gets brought home late thinking that's the <laughs> But your childhood was good. 
You, you, you had a nice childhood. I did, up until I was a teenager, really. It was lovely. Well, where yeah. did you grow up? Uh, in, in a tiny little village in Kent, like very rural, a, a village called Benenden. Yeah. Uh, and the only thing it was really known for was they had a very posh girls' school there where Princess Anne went to school. Is that where you went to school? No, I didn't, no. I went to the local primary school. And you've got very strong socialist views. Was that born out at that time in your childhood? Was there anything in your childhood that made you sense that there was a posh school for posh kids down the road, but you had to go somewhere else? Oh, yeah, very much so. What made me angry in a way about that school was that when the girls all went home on holiday, the plebs, that was us, we were allowed to go up and use the swimming pool while they weren't there. Because obviously if we'd gone up when, when, you know, when they yeah. were there, we would have spread our nasty working class <laughs> yeah. stains all over them. Um, so that, that sort of patronising thing of, like, patting the poor villagers on yeah. the head and going, yes, you know, do partake of our charitable offerings just wound me up. It really did. What was the thing that made you want to do stand-up? Because I like people laughing. It's as simple as that, you know, because I think a lot of people's lives are bloody miserable and they're not going to change. And so if you can have a bit of time off and have a laugh, everyone knows how brilliant it is having a laugh. And, you know, physiologically, when you have a laugh, it's like taking heroin. Granted, not very strong heroin. <laughs> but, you know, it does release chemicals into your brain that make you feel better. And surely that, that is a good thing. And I, I love the British sense of humour. I think it's a very unique sense of humour. I think British people are self-deprecating and they have quite a dark sense of humour about their lives, which I really like. And so it's just something that I feel really comfortable doing. And there was an element of me that just wanted to sort of scotch this rumour that, that women aren't funny as well. Yeah. I wanted to try and be as funny as I could to show that women can be funny. What were you getting out of it? I felt pleased when I made people laugh. That's all, yeah. all I got out of it. And I like the hours. <laughs> <laughs> but also, to me, when you make somebody laugh, it's it, like comedy's an instant form of communication, isn't it? You say something and you get the result, they laugh. Stand that and compare it to working in the profession that you were working in where, to me, you know, working at the coalface of being a nurse, particularly within mental health, means you don't always get that instant gratification. No, that is true. But I think the department I worked in, you got the most instant gratification you did because we were an emergency department, so we kind of intervened very immediately. We weren't, you know, working overtime doing counselling yeah. or, you know, monitoring someone um, recovering from a psychotic episode. We were sorting something out there and then, and so I liked that sort of work. My perception of what you were doing as a job was that it was pushing uphill. Yeah. You know, where, and then going to stand-up was a release for you, whereas I could see in two ways they were probably more parallel than I thought. No, I think they are very, really. Because I know when I got into it, I was on a downer because I'd split up with my wife. And I found, for me, being on stage was like my counselling. Do you know what I mean? I do, I do. And I, I think that is, that is something that, that other people talk about as well, that it's almost like having some treatment. I, I think what I was doing, really, I suppose, in a very simplistic way, was having a go at my dad. Yeah. 
you know. And that's why men became the target. People say to me, do you hate men? And I used to think, no, just me dad. <laughs> Not really. But um, he was top of the list for a long time. <laughs> did you ever resolve that with him? <sighs> we, di we did to uh, as far as it would go. Yes, I suppose we did. I mean, we talked about it a lot, you know. It was very interesting because he couldn't actually remember being like that at all. He just sort of blanked it all out. When you started doing stand-up then, this thick skin that you developed as a child by having the brothers... Literally. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and your dad. When you went on stage, the one thing that struck me, and I've seen some of the clips, when you first started, your first ever telly show, you, you've talked before about being self-deprecating. You took it to the extreme. You made yourself the butt of the joke straight away. Was that a defence mechanism so nobody else could do it? Well, yeah, I suppose it was to some extent. I thought if I do it first and I do it better, because, you know, when people heckle you, it's not really imaginative, is it? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They pick on the first thing about it. So if you're a fat person, they go, you're fat in one way or another, don't they? And you go, no. Really? <laughs> I never noticed like, it. It never occurred to me. Where, and if you're bald, they go, you're bald. That's what I've always thought is really weird about insulting people. You insult them by telling some, them something about themselves that they've known since the dawn of time, <laughs> you know. Can you not be kind of a little bit more imaginative if that's what you're going to do? You know, when I went on stage, I knew I was going to get insulted about my weight. So I was prepared, because that, that's what you do when you're a stand-up. You know, I used to prepare heckle put-downs, and I, I would lie in bed at night and think, what will I say if someone says that to me? And what will yeah. I do if someone Pe says people that? People don't believe you do that as, no, a, as know, a stand up People think, <laughs> and you think, no, I, I don't. you walk on stage fully armed, don't you? You really do. And I don't know if you used to grade yours. I used to do... Like, nice, whimsical ones to people that didn't really mean it that seemed quite nice. Whereas if I thought someone was a serial killer, I'd do, like, my really <laughs> nuclear one. So, so what, what, what would be a whimsical one? If some bloke shouted out, you're fat and ugly, I would just say something like, where's your girlfriend outside grazing, I presume, or something like that. That's a good one. That was a whimsical one. And a nuclear... The one that always used to work the best was, shut the fuck up or I'll sit on your face. And, um, <laughs> then I would say, or maybe I won't bother because I haven't got my period at the moment. <laughs> That is so horrible, isn't it? I know. To, to be fair, but I think really... It works. You were there probably at the forefront of, of stand-up comedy because now, when I, I, I still do a few club gigs and the etiquette is kind of understood now. People don't heckle as much as they used to and they do listen. You know, when I first started out, I, I remember... Like, I remember doing the comedy store, doing the late show once and someone throwing a glass... You know, well, that's appalling, isn't it? Yeah, it's appalling. And the problem was, the mistake that he made, he was only on the second row, so I could see him. <laughs> anyway, I didn't have a very good put-down. I just jumped in. But, Did you? Yeah. <laughs> but that was an instinctive thing, and that, that, was the, that was the problem. Only twice have I ever really lost it, and in both occasions I've let myself down because I've used the threat of violence more than I've used the intelligence of making them look you. But in reality, you need to be a bit better than that. And that's what I liked about you. You went on stage and sort of 
placed yourself as a target and said, whatever you've got, I've got more than you can give me. But I have lost my temper as well uh, on a couple of occasions. And it's, it's exactly like, like you say, is once you lose control, then your power just dissipates. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, and they've won in a way. So I used to try really hard not to. And, and I didn't very often, but, you know, it's scary when you do. Do you think uh, entering stand-up at the time that you did uh, and the way it was all set up, because it was all burst and on the scene, really, no-one knew about how big tours could go or television series. Do you think if you hadn't have done it then, if you were in the same position you were then now, would you enter it now? Well, I would have liked to, but I don't think I could have done using the sort of material I did when I started, really. Why? Because I just don't think people would have put up with it, you know. They, they, just, wouldn't, they just wouldn't have it, really. So you think we've become softer? I don't think it's softer. I just think that people's... Like, in the 80s, there was a kind of backlash against what were called yuppies. There were these very kind of wealthy, like, city boys. And, you know, there was kind of an alternative comedy. It was a left-wing movement which sort of railed against kind of racism. Yeah. And, you know, this kind of... This sort of loads of money that Harry Enfield did, that, that sort of thing. And so, in a way, a kind of feminist perspective, I, I suppose, fitted, um, fitted into that. But I think these days... Although in the last couple of years, because my daughters are that age, there's been a kind of resurgence of sort of feminism in some ways because of how vile people are to women on Twitter mm. who make very kind of innocuous statements, you know. For someone to say they think there should be a woman on a banknote and suddenly loads of people on Twitter say you should be raped... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's laughable if it wasn't so awful, really. But that's the distance of the, the world that we live in, isn't it, of social media? They'll say that at a distance using the thumbs, texting, whereas when you're standing alone as a stand-up comedian, they're saying that to your face. Believe you me, they say stuff like that to your face, or they mm. did, you know, to women... Um, in those days. And it's a good thing, maybe, that they won't say it to your face anymore, but that's because they've got things like Twitter to have a shield so that they don't have to be identifiable. But did you see yourself as a feminist? Yeah, no, no, I always thought I was one. I think the, you know, the kind of um, image of a feminist that the tabloid press created was something that really put women off because they they work very hard at portraying feminists as kind of dungaree wearing shaven headed doc martin wearing monsters whereas i always thought that sounded more like a plumber myself but um <laughs> you know it was a bad thing to be a feminist and, yeah. and they work very hard to make sure that you felt unfeminine when of course it doesn't need to be at all and, and I think what a lot of uh, young women kind of didn't realise, that the point about being a feminist is that you can be any kind of feminist that you want, you know, because you've got a line, haven't you, with uh, the separatist, man-hating, radical lesbian feminist mm. that end who do wear the dungarees or whatever it is, and, and then feminists right the other end who, like, wear makeup, you know, high heels, they like looking nice. And the problem is that I'm one of those, but I look like one of those. <laughs> This podcast is sponsored by UK TV Play, the free on-demand service, where you can watch the TV shows you love from Dave, Yesterday, Really and Drama, wherever you want, whenever you want. 
the home of BAFTA-nominated series Taskmaster and the critically acclaimed Red Dwarf, alongside other UK TV Play exclusive including The White Princess and Most Haunted. UK TV Play offers free access to thousands of hours of comedy, drama, documentaries and paranormal TV, all for free. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You were, you know, this lesbian feminist who then shocked everyone by go, going and getting married and having kids. Well, what was so hilarious, actually, was that um, journalists from The Sun actually phoned up people on the circuit in the 1980s to try and get them to say, I was a lesbian. Like, they phoned up Paul O'Grady, because obviously he's the fucking expert. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And so to him, is Joe Brand a lesbian? <laughs> Fucking ask her yourself, you know. But how ridiculous is that, really? Because they wanted me to be that so that I would then fit into a little box and be that thing that male readers could hate or some readers could hate. But the problem with the tabloids to me is they always reduce everything to a very simplistic three adjectives yeah. and you can never get away from that you know and with me it was always fat man hating feminist you know as if that was something appalling and so of course when I got married they were like do what's <laughs> gone wrong here but I know there was the tabloid backlash to this you know man hater but then your life moves on you get married you have kids I'm surprised anybody would have that but in a way, I, I, didn't, I didn't want it to stop, you know, because that when I did get married, I noticed kind of various articles saying, you know, virtually that I'd been tamed by my husband. <laughs> <laughs> and that was worse than, than anything else in a way, because it was just this whole attitude that they have, which is gobby women are just waiting for a nice man to come along and put an apron on them so they can get in the kitchen and behave themselves, you know. And I, and I get that quite a lot, that sort of implication from people that now you're married, you're behaving yourself much better, aren't you? And you're much nicer and you're more polite. To Is which I go, fuck off, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Is that because you're doing less stand-up, less touring because, you know, you've got a family now? I, I don't know why it is. I think it's just because that's how they would like it to be, you know, because if they actually came to see my stand-up, they would sort of realise that I'm not talking about doing yeah. the hoovering. But it, is, but it is interesting because over the years you have moved away from stand-up as well. You've done different things that one might perceive to be a little bit 
softer. Such as you did the big splash. Oh, right. Oh, fuck me, that wasn't soft. <laughs> that was one of the hardest things I've done. No, no, hard thing for you to do, but what I mean is it was it was a departure... But politically sort of not challenging. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. a departure from the dual brand on the stage that we saw before. I think people having to look at me in a swimming costume was quite a challenge. I, <laughs> I loved it. That series where you basically took individuals and did different things that were water-based, what made you do that? Where did that come from? It was from? a laugh. I did actually really enjoy it. And I think um, a lot was to do with the fact that, like, you know, I'm... Oh, Christ, I'm 58 years old. And I was getting older, I'm a bit fat and I'm a bit past it. And I kind of feel that when women get to a certain age, that they kind of get a bit invisible, really. And mm. which is great if you want to do a bit of shoplifting. But... Um, <laughs> You know, I kind of almost felt like I wanted, along with every other woman that's trying desperately to stay on the telly, even though they shouldn't, or they've been told they shouldn't, you know, because they're not young enough and they're not pretty enough or whatever it is. And so I kind of felt like, yeah, I'm going to go out there in my big spotty cosy and cause a bit of trouble and, and have a laugh and just sort of demonstrate, hopefully, to women that are getting older that you can do actually what you like doing and what's fun and you don't have to behave in a certain way. Taking that to another level, which is the most recent thing, was the sports relief challenge. I remember talking to you on that challenge. You, you said there was an element in your mind about doing something that most people would not expect a woman of your age and level of fitness to do. Sure. Now, just, just remind everybody what you actually did. I walked from uh, one side of Britain to the other, from the Humber Bridge in the east to Liverpool in the west, over seven days. But this is done... When was it? The end of January? February? January, yeah. So it's done at the worst time. You know when people walk coast to coast? They do it in the summer. Yeah. You know, on that day, lorries were getting blown over, weren't they? Because yeah, of the and Bill Turnbull of off BBC Breakfast said that to me, as if he was almost questioning, lorries have been blown over, but you haven't, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on there? Are you heavier than a lorry? Um, um, <laughs> He was hilarious. He's so, I'm sad he's left, Bruxelles, yeah. because he's such a great national grump, <laughs> isn't he? He's great. But when you did that trip, and I saw you on the final day, you said that during each day you'd gone across the north of England, the industrial north of England that had been, you know... Decimated. It, decimated, and it was a real eye-opener to you. Did you finish the walk with a sense of elation? Or did you hit that dark bit? Because I remember talking to you about it. When you do something like that, often you come out of it a little bit lost. I certainly did. Yeah, I found, like, big bits of it very sad, really, which obviously doesn't go down particularly well um, on comic relief terms. But just because it was an area where people have lost an awful lot and a lot of people seem to be living hand-to-mouth and local communities don't really exist anymore because whatever it was, the mine or the factory or whatever that held them together has gone and people just seem kind of a bit lost and a bit hopeless in some ways... But to counteract that, the spirit of people all the way across, 
that I met, with one or two exceptions, was really, <laughs> was really lovely. And I just like people. Yeah. And I think people are kind of very resilient. It pisses me off when people are, like I am, put into little boxes, you know, everyone on the dole's a scrounger, that, those sorts of things. When, we, when certain groups of people want to see people in particular ways, it just sort of bleaches out people's individuality and that annoys me because I think as a group, the human race have got an awful lot going for them really. And I really resent the way that political groups try and paint groups of people in certain ways to gain a political advantage, I suppose. And so to me, it was lovely to be up there and just to meet people and kind of say hello to them and, and talk about what their lives were like, really. And did you feel that you're not only you're making a contribution to sport relief, which you did, I mean, you raised over a million pounds, which is, a, you know, a massive, massive effort. <laughs> not only did you raise over a million pounds, but you did something again for women of age and women of size it's a good thing because if you can do it anyone can do it i felt like that if i can do it anyone can do it i think you know probably 80 percent of the population could do what i did yeah but so they i don't. hope they do you can say everyone could do it but really they don't put themselves out there and one of the things from my experience i'm sure it's the same with you when you sign up to it you're not doing it on your own like, the whole country's watching you, they have this whole infrastructure, people taking photographs following me, the camera all day, and so the pressure to actually do it when you really don't want to is immense. Yeah, that's true. That's true, you just have to push yourself. Yeah. I mean, I was actually dead for about three days, <laughs> and they just kept me going with a bit of puppetry and uh, <laughs> revived me. Um, no, I, exactly. Well, I would have stopped after the first night, to be honest, I think, if I'd been on my own. It was hard. How did you... How did Bernie, your husband and your kids, react to you doing it? Well, I think he was just very proud of me, really, you know, that, that I'd done it. And uh, I don't often go away from home that much, really. So I think it was just a bit weird for them and me not being there for a week. And my daughters are teenagers, so even if I just put the kettle on, I'm embarrassing. So um, I think they were kind of a mixture of kind of, ooh, like that, and a, a bit proud. Teenage daughters, uh, as we were saying before, is a challenge at any stage. But if one of them turned around and said, Mum, I want to be a stand-up comedian, would you encourage them? Yeah, I would, definitely. Because I think... As a stand-up comic, you have you have a certain amount of freedom that no other yeah. performers have. You know, I've always thought like being an actor. I mean, I admire actors, and actually, they're a very different breed from comics. And I just couldn't do what they do because they're forced all the time to say words that other people have written. But as a stand-up, you say what you want when you want it. Well, you say you say you couldn't do it. But you'd have won a, a BAFTA for getting on. Which getting is, on, yeah, which was a, like a, an NHS... Um, I don't really know what it was, sitcom-ish. Very, very funny. How gratifying was it to, to actually write something that is then eventually made and then lauded and critically acclaimed to the extent that it was? Well, it's lovely. You know, as, as uh, someone who has had my fair um, amount of criticism uh, yeah. over the years, it's, um, 
Yeah, it was it was fantastic. And actually, I mean, a lot of what we did was was improvised as well. So from that point of view, we were we were kind of really pleased with it because it you know it's it's not an easy thing to do really um, to get right. So you have won a BAFTA. I can't bear those sorts of events, yeah. and the only reason. I went to, to the BAFTAs that day was because my mum said she was going to come. She rang me up and said she really wanted to go. And so I said, all right. And so I got tickets for us. And then on the morning, she rang me up and said, oh, I'm not coming. Oh. And so um, I, I, I took a, a friend of mine along instead, thinking, oh, well, you know, just get through it. Because I hate all that red carpet bollocks. And um, what was the most entertaining was my friend, Wagley, who I took with me, who's quite out of control at times. When I won the BAFTA, she just grabbed hold of it and ran up to the balcony, held it over the balcony and just went, yeah! <laughs> like that as everyone. It was such fun. But for you as a person, as you say, you, you, you've, you've took your knocks in your career. That is an achievement to have. That must have you, you can play it down, but you must have gone home and gone, uh, Oh, I was stunned. Oh, God, I was so pleased, yeah. But now I've done that, I think I should do something else. Because I think one thing that, that we do in, in lots of areas is that you win one BAFTA and then people think to prove yourself you've got to win another one. Or you win a gold medal at the Olympics and then the rest of your life is trying to, to get another one. Yeah. Like poor old Steve Redgrave always had a haunted look, didn't he? Yeah. Shit, I've got to get five. <laughs> and... Um, so I, I just think I'm really happy with what I've got, oh, you know, yeah. and I wouldn't carry on and think, oh, I've got to get another one. Listen, Joe, uh, what can I say? I knew this would be fun, and I think we'd all agree it's been a brilliant conversation. Joe, thank you. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by UK TV Play, the free on-demand service. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.